Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Red Light Report. On today's episode, I was able to bring on a plastic surgeon who is recognized around the world. I've been on her podcast a couple of times, and now I am uh, lucky enough to host her on my podcast. It's Dr. K. Durai Raj. She's an internationally renowned facial plastic surgeon and head and neck surgeon, and she completed her surgical training at UCLA and is a member of the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and American Board of Otolaryngology. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and head and neck and surgery. Dr. K specializes in faces, including surgery for eyelids, rhinoplasty, facelift, and neck lift. Her expertise in Botox and neurotoxins, facial injectables and fillers, and was voted on one of the top 100 injectors in the country by her peers. On top of all of that, Dr. K has her own line of physician-grade skincare products called KD Skincare, which I can advocate for. I've used personally myself, and so has my wife, and we both love our, our skincare products from K. And she also has her own podcast, like I mentioned, called Beauty Bites. She also has her own aesthetic course called Modern Aesthetic Theory. So with all of that being said, Dr. K, thanks for getting through the traffic mm-hmm. and, and being on my podcast. Yay. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. You're like one of my biohacking compadres. So I'm always learning from you. That goes both ways. I appreciate it. Yeah. So just just quickly, uh, tell us about your background and how you kind of got into this world of plastic uh, surgery to where you are now as one of the most internationally renowned plastic surgeons. Well, I love anatomy and my dad is a head and neck surgeon. Maybe that predisposed me, but I think that the face and the head and neck area has the most intricate and beautiful anatomy of the whole body. And so I'm partly an artist, partly an anatomist, and um, that's what made me interested in faces and aesthetics. So I've been doing this for about 20 years. I trained at UCLA, which is a major head and neck program in terms of doing cancer surgery and those big operations that take 10 or 12 hours where you take apart the whole face and put it all back together. And so, I mean, that was my training and my passion and it's evolved over the years into aesthetics because I think artistically it's so interesting. I'm learning really to use fillers and neurotoxins to modulate the way the face looks and non-invasive to me is really interesting. I'm a surgeon at heart love operating, but I also love the fact that we can do things non-invasively because patients really want no downtime and immediate results. So I think Instagram has helped me grow my global presence and uh, I love teaching too. Absolutely. And how many, how many years of school did you have to go through uh, between college and graduate and beyond? Oh my gosh, that's a lot. It's four years of college and then uh, four years of med school a year and a half of general surgery residency, and then head and neck surgery was another four and a half years, so six years total residency and surgical training, which is like brutal, like every other night on call, so hard. And then, um, yeah, then 20 years of practice. So it's a a lot of years of training. It's missing with the years of your 20s and 30s, basically. A lot of, yeah, a lot of dedication, a lot of delayed gratification in a sense. You're, you're going through all the school because you see the end of the road. You want to help people in, in a major way. And so that, that's cool to see my hats off to you. 
So you seem to be the go-to skincare treatments for, for especially celebrities since you're located in, in Los Angeles. So what are they coming to see you mostly for? What type of treatments? Let's start there. I mean, I think everybody wants that glowing, pretty fresh skin. And especially during the pandemic, everyone really took a hard look at their skincare routines and there was that extra time in the day to do self-care. So when I see celebrities, number one thing we work on is like improving the facial skin, making sure you look good because you can, they wear so much makeup and they're always like having to be in the limelight magnified 50 fold. So every little flaw is showing And I think, you know, Botox and fillers now are ubiquitous. Like if you look at models, 100% of models have Botox, 100%. Like people think like, no, there's still natural beauty. I think that was over in the 80s, like the 80s supermodels were the last generation of like truly natural, just born with it, gorgeous. And there's still, of course, that one in a million person that has beautiful facial proportions that just is like a striking beauty. But now we can achieve that with fillers and Botox and everybody is rightly so using that to their advantage to modulate the face they want and accentuate their best features. So very often people are doing little touch-ups. Microneedling is so popular. That's a treatment to stimulate stem cells to produce new collagen and like turn on the body's bioregenerative repair process. So that's super popular with platelet-rich plasma and really medical grade skincare is the most important thing. So that leads me to your conversation about Botox and neurotoxins. Very popular, like you said, among celebrities, people just wanting healthier looking skin. So the question being, what is your answer for the fact that the Botox and neurotoxins seem to get a lot of bad press? Can you kind of uh, go over kind of those myths and misconceptions about Botox and neurotoxins? Yeah, I think people are always a little hesitant to try something new. And at this point, Botox is 20 years old and we've treated 100 million patients with Botox successfully and safely for the face. And of course, everybody is opposed to the idea of a toxin because it's termed a toxin. It comes from a bacteria. It's naturally sourced from a bacteria. It is a purified protein. And it's a toxin because when given in large quantities or you ingest a big dose of it, you can get botulinum, which is life-threatening. But this is super micro-purified, developed in the laboratory. The quantities are minuscule and very titrated and very safely and effectively given. And the goal being to paralyze muscles that give unwanted expressions. Like you can frown, but what's is there a necessity? Only in terms of expression and communication, but repeated frowning leads to scowling, deep lines and furrows and, you know, long-term crinkles and lines that look like you have weathered aging changes. So, so I think the beauty of Botox is the ability to repress those frown, scowl, squinching your eye muscles and give you long-term, nicer, fresher, more relaxed appearance to your face. It looks quite natural, but everybody, of course, is terrified when they first hear about it. And I think the fear really comes from seeing bad examples of our of plastic surgery work. The good work you can't really see, or it just looks good through the decades. Like I always tell people, like the Cindy Crawfords of the world, they don't look good naturally. And she's even admitted herself. She uses Botox fillers and peels and treatments. And that's how you maintain and have longevity of your you know, your facial identity and your appearance. So I think the fillers also get a bad rap because we see ginormous lips or we see like suddenly actresses getting big chipmunk cheeks right before the Academy Awards. And that's just bad work. That's just like, that's not the best example of what we do. So, so with the neurotoxin literally paralyzing muscles, 
so that they're not, I guess, overused and thus causing those, like you said, wrinkles in your face from doing the same expression over and over again? Right. Because over time, the skin actually develops some contractures and fibrous bands down to the musculature. And skin is like a tablecloth or a piece of paper. The more we repeatedly fold it, the more those creases remain long-term. Like I can iron the tablecloth real good and I'll still see where the crease was. So if you want to avoid getting to that point, you just need to keep it smooth. And um, you can definitely have normal facial expressions with small amounts of Botox. You don't have to look frozen. That's people's fear that they're going to look frozen or weird or like in, you know, in the movies when they see you're trying to drink and you're drooling like that doesn't truly really happen unless it's done incorrectly. Gotcha. That makes sense. That's a good metaphor with the tablecloth. And so when I was looking through your website, Kate, and it's beauty by drk.com, um, of course, you have the cosmetic services, plastic surgery, aesthetic services, but then you also have this line of medical services, which I was kind of interested in. You do throat and voice, allergies, audiology and hearing, migraines, vertigo testing, and then sleep apnea, which had me interested because I just interviewed one of the top breathing experts in the world, Dr. Patrick McGowan over in Ireland. And of course, he's all about nasal breathing. And so am I after reading and learning about the impact on your health from nasal breathing versus mouth breathing, which Mm -hmm. takes to the point of your sleep apnea medical service. So what does that look like? What are you fixing? Are you doing something surgically? Run through that for us. Of course. Well, so as a head and neck surgeon, I um, fully treat all aspects of the face and head and neck, including so nasal breathing. I'll treat deviated septums for people who have crooked cartilage in their nose. It blocks the inflow of oxygen properly. Um, I treat sinus problems. In terms of sleep disorders, people often get sleep studies and are placed on CPAP machines or machines to help them breathe through the night. But rarely do they get sent to see an expert head and neck specialist who can evaluate like if you have obstructive sleep apnea, what is the obstruction and shouldn't we take away the obstruction? So sometimes it's your deviated septum. Sometimes it's an elongated uvula, the little dangling bell in the back of the throat or the palate. Sometimes it can be a large base of tongue that falls backwards when you try to sleep. So there are many different areas where you can have blockage. So step one, if you get diagnosed with sleep apnea, you should see a head and neck specialist. And then we can offer surgery. We try, we trim and tighten the palate. We sometimes remove or take out a core of the base of the tongue. There's areas of the voice box we can pull forward. Oh, so many things we can do. It's difficult when people just get placed on a machine to live with and sleep with for like, here you go. The next 20 years, you're going to wear a CPAP machine. It's socially difficult. It's hard to wear at night and it doesn't bypass the obstructions. So if you have Mild or moderate apnea, it's always recommended to first get your anatomy looked at. And it's quite effective. Those surgeries are are effective in the right person. And someone super heavy or has obesity, surgery may not cure you because then it's just sort of the weight of your body and chest that's compressing down on on your respirations. Gotcha. And this might not be the correct question, or maybe it's a loaded (laughs) question, but how many people do you see the walk-in using a CPAP machine and then you're able to do some type of surgery or or otherwise and then at least wean them off or get them off the CPAP machine? I think that's a great question. Usually about 40 to 50% of patients can have pretty good improvement or cure even. 
I wouldn't want to overstate that because sleep apnea is so complicated and people sometimes it's really a weight issue. I would say like 50% of patients, it's a weight issue. But once people have had surgery, the surgery itself stimulates some weight loss because if you've ever had your tonsils out or your throat operated on, you know it's just hard to eat for two, the first two weeks and automatically you're going to lose 10, 15 pounds. So that always gives people that nice jump start. Your first step is if you have mild or moderate apnea to come and see a specialist. And I, you would be surprised like how often there's a physical obstruction and we can make you breathe better. I think if you have a deviated septum, you just live with it for so long. You think that that's what's normal to breathe. And you don't realize that normal people have two nostrils with great airflow. And so I love that operation because it's really 90% of people are delighted and wish they'd done it sooner. Gotcha. That makes sense. Especially with you working with skin and knowing and being an expert in the skin care world. What is your opinion on sun exposure? Is it over embellished or is it getting a bad rap as far as what it does to skin? Or is it rightfully so that we need to be really protecting our skin every time we're out in the sun? What's your, what's your take on that? That's such a good question. And the more I read and learn about light and the wavelengths of light, and the more I realize that sunlight is essential for humans and I do think that dermatology in general has oversimplified this, put sunscreen on, you know, it's life-threatening to get a skin cancer. It definitely is important to wear sun protection. If you're going to be out in the direct sunlight for any more than, you know, an hour of direct sunlight, you need to have sunscreen on. I especially think in terms of preserving attractiveness and beauty of your face, Yes, you should wear your sunscreen every day because the age spots, modeling, fine lines, wrinkle, those all are going to happen if you're in sun, even for limited amounts of time. Skin is so delicate. Imagine a newspaper in your driveway. It gets yellow, cracked, and aged just from sitting out for 24 hours. So for my patients, the important real estate, the face, sunscreen every day. But in general, I think that we should be sunbathing and taking in some of the infrared light, especially the more I read about infrared and the more you've taught me, like around sunrise and sunset, on the large areas of the body, like the back, the legs, you know, the, the not important real estate. That's where you're going to get your vitamin D synthesis, that calming feeling. And just crazily enough, you humans have evolved like plants to have some type of um, chlorophyll and chloroplasts, which in humans is mitochondria. And I do feel that um, we need the sun. And that brings up a good point. You said the sunrise and sunset, but especially the sunrise um, I don't remember if I talked about this on your podcast, but the reason that getting the the sunrise or the, at least the very early morning sun, of course, it's mostly red and infrared, but that preconditions our skin for the sunlight at noon and one and two in the afternoon. So uh, tens of thousands of years ago, or especially before we had plastic surgeons and dermatologists and such, or even sunscreen, mammals when they would get the sun exposure early in the morning, that red and near infrared, it would precondition their skin, meaning they'd be able to tolerate the UV rays for a longer period of time without getting the, the skin damage. And so that's actually something we can do with red light therapy um, with a device is if you know you're going to be out in the sun for, for longer periods of time, you can do a simple treatment with, with red light only because that treats the skin, but you do it before you're going to go out in the sun, whether it's, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes or so before the sun exposure, but you do a quick treatment with the red light, 
And again, that preconditioning your skin makes it more tolerant to those stresses of the UV rays. Not to say that's a sunscreen or it's going to prevent aging of the skin or whatnot, but it does allow you, and the science shows it allows uh, the skin to tolerate UV light more. And I'd love to hear your experience personally. Also a question I'd like to hear people, especially those that have gone through lots of school is, did you learn anything about light in school as far as using it for a healing property or preventive skincare tool? No, my God, heck no. I don't think they even taught sunscreen in med school. (laughs) That's just like something you pick up from the throwaway magazines that you read. But no, we have not been taught about the benefit of light, ultraviolet. They teach you about UV damage, of course. You learn about tanning beds being bad for the skin. But we have not learned about the benefits of light exposure, except I think recently, like through COVID, there's so much emphasis on vitamin D deficiency and the importance of vitamin D for immune system health. So now there's a focus on getting some sunlight exposure. I think that's really been the only time we've really been taught to study it. So there's a huge deficiency in medical education in terms of learning about these kind of things. And I guess we learned so much in med school that they don't have room or space to keep enlarging the curriculum, but they really need to as we learn more. I'd be a big fan of that. Yeah, or at least updating the curriculum, right? I know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to some extent, don't you think it's still considered a little bit fringe, the infrared and, you you know, light exposure? Well, ironically, it's fringe, yet it's been around for decades and decades. And at least the information has been around for a long time. But like you're saying, it just hasn't been accepted or it's been intentionally ignored by the powers that be because you can't patent light. So it's tough to make a lot of money off of light where, like you're saying, it's easier to promote and market the sunscreens and those type of products, because then you have to put it on all the time. Um, it's like you have to simplify the consumer message. Like you want to avoid skin cancer, you got to get sun, you know sunscreen, but right. that eliminates the whole conversation about the benefit of light and the pineal gland and the circadian system and everything that the body really needs the sun to function. Yeah. It's an essential nutrient. And some people almost argue it's as important or more important than food because it's even more of a foundation than food is. You can put in the best gasoline into your body, but if you're not taking care of the engine itself, which is the mitochondria, and they need healthy amounts of light and the correct correct type of light, then it doesn't matter what type of food you put in your body. If you're staying out of the sun, you're malilluminated, and you're just surrounding yourself by blue lit technology. So that might be a little hyperbolic, but I think it kind of just emphasizes the point of how important light is. And of course, you complement that with high high quality food. It's the best of both worlds. So what have you noticed personally using red light therapy? And is it something you start have integrated with your, your uh, patients? I love it. And we do infrared treatments in the office all the time. So I have a red light mask. Actually, it has five or six different colors. So the blue light is beneficial for acne treatment, the green light for anti-inflammatory The red light is really great for anti-aging and circulation benefits. And I think if you try red light therapy at home, you get this first off, this sense of peacefulness, which is interesting because it's like very calming and soothing, just like it is to sit in the sun. When the sun rays hit you, you just, your body relaxes. So for me, that's been really beneficial. And I try to use it when I'm reading my emails or something to detract from the blue light that I'm getting from the bad blue light from the UV screen of the computer. 
I think it's been beneficial. It's hard to detect like incremental change in your skin yourself. I'm aging pretty well, I would say. So I think that's been amazing. I also started to use an infrared sauna blanket. I don't know if you've used, do do you believe in sauna blankets? So what does that look like? It's from this company, The Higher Ground, and it's like a large plastic encased with the heat element. So you turn it on and you kind of sit in there and the the heat at the right frequency stimulates you to sweat. And it's really like a sauna. It's basically a sauna effect. So you feel like you've had a major workout and your body is sweating, your heart is pumping, and it gives you that feeling of euphoria like you just exercised a lot. So it's kind of an interesting concept. And people who believe in sweating out toxins and things, it's probably definitely does a great job at that. So, So I've been using infrared in both of those ways. Not so much with the morning light. I don't know about you. Are you like an early riser where you get up at sunset, sunrise? I never use an alarm clock. I just wake up with the light. My schedule is flexible like that. Yeah, it's something I started integrating over a year ago at this point when I learned the importance of being outside and watching the sunrise from Dr. Jack Cruz. And it was about last October that I learned that. And I've been doing it, I would say five or six out of you know, seven mornings a week, I'm outside barefoot. So I'm getting the grounding and I'm watching the sunrise from anywhere from, you know, 10 to 20 to sometimes 30 minutes, depending on how much time I have. So yeah, I've just made it an integral part. And I think that alone has helped normalize my circadian rhythm. So it makes it easier for me to go to bed at night and much easier for me to wake up whenever the sun is coming up in the morning. And of course that varies throughout the year. So it's not like I'm waking up at 6 a.m. every morning. Sometimes like in the middle of summer, I'll be waking up at 5.30 but like this morning, it was closer to seven or so. So it just depends. But I, I've liked it as a ritual. It just gets me outside. I live by the river. I live in the mountains. So I'm breathing the fresh air. I'm grounding and I'm getting that red light from the sunrise. So I think it's a win-win-win. That sounds so healthy. It's so hard to be consistent with that if you're like, you know, if you have kids or you're on a schedule or you have like a, you know, surgery calendar. <laughs> but that's something I really want to try to do. I don't know if you have advice on how to switch from being a night person to a morning person. This podcast interview was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horneck, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids. And most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop. That's biolite.shop. Well, I don't know if I have advice other than when I uh, started dating and got engaged and married my wife, she's always been a major stickler for going to bed relatively early. And I say that because before I really met her, I was going to bed at 
11, 11, 30 midnight pretty consistently, but she loves her sleep. So she's in bed at nine, nine 30 and we're lights out by 10 every single night. So that's not advice, but that's, <laughs> that's what happened mm-hmm. to me. And uh, really I've liked it because now I look forward to bed. I look forward to getting that good sleep, regenerative sleep, and then waking up early um, and starting my day earlier rather than later. So I don't have advice for switching it up. Like you said, everyone's schedule is different. If you have kids or you have these demanding schedules, it does make it more complex, but it's all about perfecting your sleep environment so that when you go there, it's going to be dark. It's going to be calming. It's going to promote sleep. And let's say you go to bed at 11. Well, try going to bed at like 1050 and do that for a week and then try 1030 for a week and then try 1020. So just like gradually bring it down little by little, making it a habit instead of trying to go from 11 to 930 in one fell sweep, because that, that makes it difficult to make it consistent and make it a, a new habit. So for me, from the outside looking in, it would make sense just to do bite-sized chunks and work it, work it that way. That's true. Well, see, I married a night owl, so <laughs> he's always up till like Wait. one or two, <laughs> one or two in the morning. And then uh, something about modern life and even med school and like the pressures of life and you almost feel like sleep is an invasion on your time. Mm. It's something you have to do, but like, I want to change my mindset more into like sleep is this protected time that you should relish and, you know, go into that. Like you said, you look forward to your sleep regenerating and feeling refreshed, but I don't think we have that mindset in America. It's like sleep as little as you can get as much done as you can. And it really needs to be like sleep is your private protected place where you get to really enjoy. Well, so much happens during sleep. And that's, that's why I've learned to look forward to sleep is learning about it, whether it's through Dr. Matthew Walker, learning from Dave Asprey, learning from Ben Greenfield, or just reading from different experts, Sachin Panda and in the circadian code, the importance of having a normalized circadian rhythm and thus high quality sleep. So much happens, so much regeneration, recovery, growth happens while we're sleeping. And if you choose to neglect that because you're a type A personality, you want to get as much done as possible. So you feel like sleeping is a waste of time. That may be true in the short term, but in the long term, you're going to end up with a lot of byproducts of having a, a dysfunctional circadian rhythm. Because what it's going to do is it's going to wreck your, your mitochondria. And as you and I know, uh, really being in the biohacking sphere, the mitochondria dictate your, your overall health and longevity. So you're going to be burning the candles at both ends if you're taken away from your sleep and not normalizing your circadian rhythm. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on sleep, but... Yeah, I also went like one of the shocking statistics that I saw was that like the 40% increased rate of dementia in people who don't sleep a certain amount of hours per night or pulling all nighters or, you know, night shift workers. So uh, that was horrifying because I thought like, okay, that's the track I'm headed down to dementia because here I am sleeping like, you know, five or six hours a night. That's not really enough. And sometimes four hours a night. And um, so I really. I wish that someone had taught me this earlier because in your 20s and 30s, you're just so invincible and you feel like your body can actually take some of the crap you throw at it. And then it's not till your 40s to 50s where you feel like, oh, I'm starting to feel a little creaks and bone pains and things like that. Now I need to pay attention to how I'm going to age in the next 25 years. But if only we had started preaching that earlier in our 20s, imagine the resilience you'd have. We're able to handle so much, uh, you know, at a certain age. But literally you turn 40 and everything like just starts to break down. <laughs> then that's when you realize like, oh, okay, maybe I need to pay attention. <laughs> maybe you haven't turned 40 yet, have you? 
No, I just turned uh, 32. So I'm, well, I'm not getting that's what you have to look forward closer. to. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I guess my point was, or my question to you was going to be, do you do anything to track your sleep? Do you use like an aura ring or a BioShap or something where you can see? Because it's not always about uh, the duration of the sleep. It's about the quality. So if you're getting like a high quality six, six and a half hours, that's better than fractionated sleep of seven and a half, eight hours. So I'm just curious, do you track your sleep? I have tried a couple different sleep studies and um, I definitely think that they're helpful. The Oura Ring, I haven't bought that myself, but I want to because I've heard so many people talking about it. But with sleep studies, you know, you can definitely see the quantity of REM sleep that you have, which is so important in the deeper sleep. It's not enough to just fall asleep and uh, lay there in bed and toss and turn for six hours. You have no idea if you're getting restorative restful sleep until you do a sleep study. And you'd be shocked and surprised at how many people really are not asleep. They're having so many micro arousals from obstructive apnea or sleep disturbance that they really never get to sleep. I see people who obstruct their airway like 30 times per hour. That's literally like, imagine if I shook your shoulder every 30 seconds for an hour, would that be restful sleep? Not really. Right. So it's no wonder that the the average American has like sleep deficit and, you know, that we're trending towards a society that's dependent on caffeine to, to re-stimulate themselves. And then caffeine is leading to nighttime sleep problems. It's really interesting. It's a vicious cycle. But I think um, especially as women get older, entering into perimenopause and menopause, the sleep changes are super dramatic and it's virtually impossible. I really think women's sleep is even a bigger issue because they have very disrupted sleep during childbirth. And then with the baby that just wrecks your sleep cycle, then you get a little bit of stability by the time you get into your forties and fifties and you get perimenopausal sleep issues. So even if you previously were a good sleeper, your body is thrown into this cycle of problems with them. Menopausal changes. So that's something you guys should, you should learn and more about that too. I think right. we need to know more about it. You know, that's a good point. And the reason for tracking I was bringing up is along, like you said, it's good to see if you're able to get into those deeper sleeps and really hold the REM cycles and, and deeper sleep. But also like with the aura ring or, or the bio strap, which is what I use now, you're able to see your quote unquote readiness score, which is essentially a, um, or your heart rate variability, both of which kind of tell you how your uh, nervous system is. Are you um, parasympathetic strong or are you more prone to sympathetic? You know, whether it's that stress, like you said, or you're eating too close to bed or you're having alcohol too close to bed. So it's cool to see those scores in the morning because for me, it really does dictate whether I'm going to do high intensity exercise or lower intensity intensity exercise or maybe no exercise at all if my readiness is so a readiness score is so low because that's telling me my nervous system is literally taxed, whether it's physically uh, or mentally, that I need to do some things. Maybe I need to go in the hyperbaric chamber. Maybe I need to do some breathing exercises. Maybe I need to take a little time off from work, not meaning the whole day, but maybe taking more frequent breaks because just like you're saying, if you're going to bed every night and you're getting fractionated sleep, uh, whether it's sleep apnea or otherwise, but if you're waking up every day with the uh, mentality that you're going to work out no matter what, you're going to push through it. Well, there's a time and place for that. If you're doing that every single day, you're literally not giving your body time to recover. You're in this constant systemic inflammatory mode. You're in constant sympathetic mode where you're not giving your body time to relax and recover. 
So, I mean, that, that's a, that's a topic. I mean, we could talk about hours for that, but, um, then how do you track that? What, what is this device that tracks that parasympathetic? So you you get that with the aura ring and, or the bio strap. And so it just shows your heart rate variability, meaning the lower your heart rate variability means the less resilient or the less able your heart's going to be able to take on different stresses. Whereas if you have a higher heart rate variability, that means you're more in a parasympathetic state. You're more going to be able to take on uh, different stresses in a given moment. It's just more resilience. So it's the opposite of heart rate where you kind of want your heart rate lower, but with heart rate variability, you want it higher and the higher it is, it means you're more in a parasympathetic state. True. Yeah. When we're looking at heart rate, we want to see like a slow, consistent level the whole night. And usually your heart rate will jump when you have stress or exacerbation or obstructions. Right. So variability is different from that. But so, I like to spend one and a half hour cycles. I usually try to set my alarm to wake up at a one and a half hour increment because otherwise the sleep cycle will be interrupted and you'll be awoken out of a deeper state of sleep. So that's one easy trick for people who don't have monitoring things that they're doing at home. There's so many free apps too, but that's just super simple. Like if you're going to take a nap, make it a 90 minute nap, not a 30 minute nap. Yep. Yep. Gotcha. So, okay. I was curious, what is your daily skincare regimen look like in a perfect world? Well, I do a lot of steps, <laughs> but it's not so difficult. I love a good glycolic wash. Glycolic acid is an acid that's sugar-based. It eats up dead skin on the surface of the skin. Um, and so that allows you to have a little bit more glow. As you age, the, the cell turnover slows down. And so glycolic is one way to speed up the turnover and keep your skin glowy, not dull. And it prevents breakouts. So I'll do that twice a day, morning and night. I keep it pretty simple. I use vitamin C twice a day and it's the, it's my version, which is 20% vitamin C. It's super strong and that's beneficial for antioxidant. It's a collagen cofactor. You need vitamin C to grow collagen. So in the mornings, it's great for antioxidant benefit and reducing ultraviolet um, free radicals that will you know damage skin surface. And at night, it's a great collagen booster. And then I will do a hyaluronic acid serum, which traps water into the skin and helps the skin retain moisture up to a thousand times its water weight. It keeps it soft and plumpy, as well as some resveratrol based products. So I'll use my triple shot serum, which has three really key antioxidants, caffeine, resveratrol and green tea. And the resveratrol and green tea are the most amazing antioxidants for the skin and just in general, even internally. I think that's a great setup in the mornings. I top that off with mineral sunscreen. So pure mineral, I'm a a believer for my face. I need sunscreen and that's going to be like SPF 50. It'll be zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. So I have a great sunscreen that's tinted, easy to wear. And it's like the highest concentration of zinc and titanium, very inert. So nothing, other sunscreens are chemical based. They get absorbed internally. These are reflective. So I think that's the healthiest And nighttime, I will just add some uh, Retin-A, which is a vitamin A derivative, as well as my new product, which I have is a stem cell growth factor, which is composed of um, human-based stem cell peptides, peptides that are derived from stem cells and up to 504 of those that kind of trigger the skin to remember that it's bathing in a youthful environment and to behave more youthfully. So it's good for fine lines, for wrinkles, for pore size, and even for pigmentation. So that keeps it really pretty simple. 
And lately I've been using also a retinol-based body cream because as you get to be a little older, you start to notice that your arms and legs don't look as like taut and firm. And so I think it's important to treat your arms, extremities, the body and the trunk itself as well, because otherwise that just gets neglected. It's not enough to just put on lotion or oils. You got to put on some active products too. Dang, that's pretty darn comprehensive. Yeah. And it, but it goes fast. I mean, if you really just like sure, sure. five steps and you're kind of routine every morning, it's super easy. And if you, at the minimum, I would say if you're going to just be a real minimalist, then you're just going to use vitamin C and some kind of moisturizer in the mornings with sunscreen. And at night, same thing, vitamin C and retin-A and moisturizer. That would be super minimal. Gotcha. That kind of answers one of my questions. It was going to be just in general, how many times a day should someone be washing their face with water and or water and soap? Less is better. Like the skin, actually, lots of studies have shown that the skin does well when you leave it alone and you don't wash it too much or you just wash with water. But I think in this day and age, it's beneficial to at least once a day when you come home from the pollution and the outside air quality and the makeup and stuff that you put on your skin, you should wash your face at least once a day to remove outside contaminants and bacteria and, you know, prevent breakouts. Gotcha. That was wearing masks. Definitely wearing masks. Yep. All right. So outside of topical supplements, I'll call them that you just went over. Are there any oral supplements that you take specifically for skin health? I actually take a collagen powder every day. I have a powder that I've developed. It's called internal radiance and um, it has about 12.5 grams of collagen peptides per serving. So a few studies have shown that you have to take the right amount of peptides to cross the skin, to cross from the stomach through the digestive tract to actually make it into the bloodstream to get to the skin. And when you take these collagen building blocks, your body actually has this paradoxical response where it's seeing collagen breakdown products in the bloodstream and it's assuming that there is a damage and it needs to repair. So it's then going to trigger some more repair mechanisms. So that's been proven to be beneficial for skin health in terms of better dermal thickness, more elasticity, less fine lines, and also for bone and joint health. Like women who took this amount of peptides for a year showed like six to 10% more bone density in their femur hip joints, which is impressive as, as after a year of just adding powder to your coffee in the morning, that's great prevention for hip fracture or future bone density issues. So I'm definitely a big proponent of that. I'll use some inulin, which is a um, fiber. It's an insoluble fiber made from artichoke root, which I put in my coffee in the mornings too. I'm trying to do intermittent fasting as much as possible, but I do find that just adding those two things to my coffee will just take away all my appetite and hunger pangs for the morning. When you do take collagen um, at that dose, you would actually consume about 40% less calories throughout the day because you're getting a little light load of protein. And I take resveratrol orally. I'm trying to take more and more milligrams. I was listening to David Sinclair on a podcast and he's talking about taking 300 milligrams or something crazy like that a day. And I was just taking 75. So now I'm up to 150 and maybe I'll do more. I definitely will take ginkgo for brain circulation. I think that helps a lot with like mental stimulation. So I'm taking resveratrol, ginkgo, and acetylcysteine. I do take zinc most mornings just for immune benefit. And I try to vary like throughout the week, I'll add various other supplements. Like sometimes I'll take a rare mineral supplement 
because I'm not eating that much mineralized stuff. And I think the American diet has is deficient in minerals. And I'm also taking iron. I think that women don't get enough iron. It's one of the leading causes of hair loss and, and you know, we're chronically anemic after menstruating and childbirth and all that. So I'll do iron as well. And lastly would be like, you know, calcium, which is controversial, but I still think um, since I don't take a lot of calcium in my diet, I'm doing calcium about a thousand milligrams daily too. So that's kind of like my regimen skin specifically. It would be the collagen, mm-hmm. the vitamins, um, resveratrol. Well, the fasting, the intermittent fasting is a good point too, because by not consuming food all the time, you're allowing your, your body to, to dedicate energy to other things such as uh, reducing inflammation systemically, including your skin and helping clean that up. So, I mean, that is a, a pretty uh, legitimate skincare tactic as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the green tea, drinking green tea is really beneficial for, I think, everything. It's a great internal flush and it's just the antioxidant potential of that is excellent. If you have two or three cups a day, it's perfect. I was recently on a trip in Italy and, you know, we were in Italy. So I thought, okay, I'm going to eat <laughs> instead of fast. Cause that would be crazy to go to all these nice places and be fasting. But like the amount of energy and time it took to have like three meals a day was crazy. I felt like, oh my God, all we're doing is eating all day. And it was like, I didn't even feel hungry. And I had all these beautiful calories in front of me. And I just felt like such high glycemic index and carbs coming into me. But luckily you're walking the whole day. So that's beneficial. I think I walk like seven miles a day. But um, it's interesting once you adopt a fasting or intermittent fasting or time-restricted approach, you really save so much time in the day and you really are not hungry. And then you realize that food is being presented to you over and over at these program intervals and you're like not even hungry and you're eating because you're visually seeing the food. So that was eye-opening for me. Well, like they say, when in Rome, you got to enjoy yourself a little bit, but that is, uh, that's a pretty good point though. People <laughs> eat out of habit or stress, or like you said, it's presented every everywhere. So it's tough to say no, 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 no all the time. But yeah, I've, I've been yeah. on an intermittent fa- fasting kick for a couple months now because I'd gotten off of it for whatever reason. I basically have a four hour window where I eat all of my food, but to your point, it saves so much time. My energy is more consistently high, not lower for sure. Yeah. You're just more efficient with your time. You're able to do more and there's just many health benefits to be had. True. It's been pretty amazing for me. So I plan to keep doing it. And I hear a couple of our colleagues doing like 36 hour and 48 hour fast. I don't know if I'm ready for that, but I think I might try the 36 hour one. Like that's like two nights in one day. That's not too hard to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to drink a lot of water. And it's like, I guess you can debate whether or not you can have coffee or tea because technically, unless you add stuff to it, but I think you can argue either way. If you're adding something that's including maybe 10 calories or 20 calories, is that really going to take you out of fasting? But the hardcore people would say yes, because that's actually going to activate some of your digestive system. So you literally want to do zero calories. But yeah, I've, I've done many 24, 36 hour fast water fasts. And I even did one that was, was it five days or seven days? It was five or seven days water fasts. By the end of it, all I could think about was, was a ribeye. So <laughs> it, was, it was tougher mentally because you, you miss eating food. Um, physically, I was fine and I was able to get through the days, but I just missed eating after five or seven days, whatever it was. 
Yeah, the habits are certain things that you're drawn to. What do you think about salt? Because I keep reading more about the importance of salt in the diet and how you should be replacing your sugar shaker with a salt shaker. I think it's been demonized, kind of like the sun in a, in a certain way, because a lot of people eat a lot of preserved foods. There are a lot of foods off the shelf in a grocery store, which are laced with sodium and other preservatives. So if that's your mainstay or your main diet, yeah, that's that's not going to be good for you. You want to decrease your sodium. But if you're eating kind of a higher quality, organic, lots of vegetables type of diet, then you do need to start incorporating some mineral, minerals and electrolytes, which which would be salt. So I'm always adding salt to every meal that that requires it. I also drink Quinton water, which has all of the micronutrients and micro minerals that you would need in the exact ratio as our blood. And it comes straight from the ocean. I don't know if you've heard of Quinton or if you've tried that before, but that's kind of my yeah. main source of getting minerals every single day. I have about a vial or two um, every day. Interesting. I haven't heard of that. How do you spell that? Q-U-I-N-T-O-N, Quinton. Quinton water. Okay. I'll have to read about I'll it. Look into that. Yeah. And uh, also if you're interested in that stuff, look up Tracy Dews or Robert Slovak. Those two are are water experts and are extremely knowledgeable in that sector. The health ramifications of the Quinton water, and there's many, many studies done over the past century or so, it's riveting and it's compelling that it makes you want to be drinking that Quinton water every day. Interesting. I've been more and more research on NAD and NMR as you know, important precursors. And I don't know how you feel about that, but the NAD levels that deteriorate so seriously with aging, it seems to be like one of the most important supplements that we should be taking. Yeah. Yeah. I read that book by David Sinclair whenever it came out a, a year, year and a half ago. And uh, I mean, to your point with resveratrol, I mean, he's super bullish on the resveratrol and the NAD or I forget which form he takes as NMR or something or NMN. NMR, I think. Yeah. Something like that. But yeah, clearly those two, especially the NAD or NMR have crucial implications on the mitochondria. So then here we go back to the mitochondrial health story for longevity and anti-aging. Um, same with CoQ10, but it's just one of those molecules that you need for the mitochondrial to be operating optimally. So it naturally declines over as you age. So naturally, as you age, you want to be potentially considering taking the NMR, CoQ10, resveratrol, all these things to help keep the mitochondria as efficient as possible and making them as functional as possible. Because the more dysfunctional mitochondria you have, that's kind of the definition of aging. If you were to ask Dr. Doug Wallace, who's the top mitochondrial research in the world, he'll tell you aging is literally dysfunctional mitochondria. So to your point about the resveratrol, the NMR, the NAD, CoQ10, all of these molecules you can take then along with fasting and then sun exposure, all these things we're doing to keep our mitochondria as happy as possible. Because as we age, if you're not doing the right things, you're going to get more dysfunctional mitochondria quicker. Thus, you're going to age quicker. You're going to get diseases more likely and more frequently. At the end of the day, I'm rereading this book called Mitochondria is the Future of Medicine. But this guy, his name is Lee No, K-N-O-W. And he says, we basically live to feed and make, make our mitochondria happy. Everything we do is to keep them as happy as possible so they can produce energy as efficiently as possible because that's what life is, is energy. The more energy you have, the more life you have, the less energy you have. And we're talking on a cellular level or tissues or a system level, 
But the more energy you have, again, the more life you'll have, the less energy, the more disease you'll have, or the closer to dying you are. So mm-hmm. mitochondria produce 95% of the energy in our body. The mitochondria are 10% of our body weight, which is incredible because there's literally hundreds to thousands in every single cell in our body. So mm. if you're 150 pounds, you're, you're 15 pounds of mitochondria. Interesting. Um, but yeah, it's just really interesting how we have all of these experts across different professions or expertises. You have Dr. David Sinclair talking about, you know, NAD and NMR and resveratrol. You have people like Matthew Walker talking about sleep. You have people like Dr. Jack Cruz talking about the importance of light and magnetism. So like grounding with the earth and whatnot, but it's all those things are just different ways of optimizing the mitochondria and mitochondrial health. It's kind of interesting. It is. I think that we have so much more to learn, but interestingly, like even if we optimize the mitochondria, like as you look at people in society, you get to be 70 and 80 and there's just a certain amount of breakdown of your body and your tissues and just from repetitive wear, stress and strain and repetitive movement injuries and things like that. So I think like without muscle strength, that is the other major factor that's going to make you age well. Because um, I'm starting to realize even in myself, like you can be skinny from fasting, but then you get flabby and then you don't have any muscle strength. So you really need to have like that nice, great posture and like the skeleton and muscles to support all these great mitochondria that we're going to feed with great supplements. <laughs> so. Right. And, and exercise is very important to mitochondria. Um, it helps make them bigger, stronger and more in number. So more mitochondrial dense. So to your point, exercise actually helps feed the mitochondria in a different way as well. Exactly. Well, Kay, I know this probably went longer than you expected. I appreciate your time. I know you have some surgeries to go do, but where can people go to learn more about you, from you, check out your supplements, the services you offer and all that good stuff? Well, it's been a pleasure chatting. Um, you can find me on my Instagram. It's beauty by Dr. K D R K A Y. And our website is the same www.beautybydrk.com. That's where you can find my skincare, the collagen and learn more about like just facial maintenance, maintenance of attractiveness, which is so important. Like we can live to be 70 and 80, but if you look in the mirror and you see a face that's like you know, melting, drooping, gravitational change, fat pad deflation. Like there is no joy in that. Unfortunately, we're very visual creatures and we are, all of us humans, we rely on our self-esteem and it's so important to like look as good as you feel internally. Yep, I agree. Check it out. Yeah. I love it. Well, again, Kay, appreciate your time. Appreciate you sharing your knowledge with my audience and um, like them, I'm sure, well, I learned a lot and I'm sure they did as well. So, Without further ado, guys, this was Dr. K, Dr. Mike, signing off another episode of the Red Light Report. Everybody have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop in our YouTube channel, BioLite. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.